My guest today is Jenny Blake, an author, podcaster, and keynote speaker. Jenny is a repeat guest. She was first on here on episode 83, where we talked about the balance between spiritual surrender and creating systems that help you grow your business. This time around, we are celebrating Jenny's new book, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. I am such a fan of this book. I could not recommend it enough. It is coming out on March 22nd, 2022. Love all of the magic twos in there. This book makes such a great gift for anyone who is an entrepreneur or wants to be an entrepreneur or perhaps has been an entrepreneur for a long time and looking for ways to deepen your relationship with the values that drive your business and a better way of organizing your time. On this episode, we shift the conversation from high net worth into high net freedom and high net growth. We talk about building your business intuition and marketing with magic and serendipity, how overwhelm is the abundance that you asked for, how to shift from criticism to gratitude, redefining success and creating your own version of what it means to be a successful entrepreneur. And the thread that is weaved throughout the whole conversation is this quote from Khalil Gibran, which I first came across in Jenny's book, Free Time. And it says, work is love made visible. For me, this quote has been such a profound invitation into coming back to why I really do what I do. And it's not to get money or numbers of downloads or likes or whatever that is, that numeric definition of successes or recognition on the outside, but it's about this depth of connection and this question of how can I, through every piece of content I put out there, bring love into the world? bring joy, bring remembering, and activate the unique frequency that you came here to embody in this lifetime. May this conversation with Jenny be a profound experience of remembering that activates you, most importantly to take action on the things that move you and things that inspire you. Before we jump into the conversation with Jenny, here is her full bio because I want to give you the scope of all of the incredible projects she has birthed into the world. And as always, you can find all of the show notes and all of the things that we reference on kseniabrief.com. Jenny Blake is an author, podcaster, and keynote speaker who loves helping business owners move from friction to flow through smarter systems, powered by delightfully tiny teams. Her third book, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business, launches March 22nd, 2022. Jenny's previous book, Pivot, The Only Move That Matters, is your next one, won the Axiom Award for Best Business Book in the Careers category in 2016. Celebrating a decade of running her own business after five years at Google, Jenny is an international keynote speaker and licenses her pivot programs to clients like Google and Chanel. Jenny hosts two podcasts with over 1 million downloads combined, free time for heart-based business owners, and Pivot with Jenny Blake to help others navigate change. After working at a Silicon Valley startup and then at Google for five years in coaching and career development, Jenny moved to New York City in 2011 to launch her own business. Jenny loves yoga, that's where I met her, and buys too many books. She lives in Manhattan with her husband and angel and fur coat German Shepherd. Enjoy this conversation with Jenny Blake. This podcast was made on Zencaster. 
Jenny Blake, welcome to my podcast. I'm holding your book, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business. And I woke up early this morning. I made myself an oat milk latte and I finished the book. And I don't know if I've ever taken that many notes on any book ever. And I am just so excited to get into all of it with you. Oh my goodness. That is the highest honor coming from you. And I love that oat latte was your drink of choice because that is always my happy drink too (laughs) when I'm out of the house. I'm so honored to be here. I love you. I love your show. I feel that our friendship is serendipity popcorn in action. And I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you. Truly, we met at a women's full moon retreat, which we spoke about more on episode 83. The first time you were on my podcast, you recommended some books that have been guiding North Stars of my life, including introducing me to Tasha Silver, who, and Martha Beck, I think you introduced me to her as well. And those two authors have just been such profound guides in my life. So thank you for that book, Doctor. And today we're going to talk all about your book and the phrase that you shared in the book that is the guiding principle of what you do, which I first heard on your podcast, Free Time, is so powerful and meaningful and such a profound invitation into redefining how we approach business and how we measure success. So I'm just going to read it and perhaps we can dive into how you came up with that or how it was given to you and what that means to you. So it says, how can we earn twice as much in half the time with ease and joy while serving the highest good? Oh, yes. This is one of my guiding questions for the last 11 years in business. And before I answer that, I also want to say that it was really special, listeners. I got to visit Ksenia and her husband at their tiny cabin in the woods in the Catskills right as I was in the thick of writing this book. So I say in there how we bake is as important as what we make. And Ksenia, like that memory of just seeing your place and all that you created and how special every, all the little touches and seeing Eric's art studio and sitting and having cold brew with you in the summer, in the woods. It's just one of those memories. Like I won't forget it. And it's totally baked into this book. So you're a part of it. (laughs) I love hearing that. It was so special to have you and meet your husband and have our artist husbands commune. Yes, we still have the spoon. Eric created a carved a wood spoon that we still have. Michael loves it. Yeah, so this guiding question you brought up, I was working at Google from 2006 to 2011. And at that time, there were just not as many stories in the entrepreneurial press of like, why I quit my six-figure job to start my own business. It was still felt very nerve-wracking. And technology had not quite gotten to the point where it is now where we could run businesses from our phone. So it felt very overwhelming and confusing. And so as I was contemplating, but I knew I was hitting burnout and I just knew I couldn't juggle my full-time job with launching my first book back in 2011. And I kept having this fear-based, persistent, almost obsessive thought of what if I quit and I go broke? What if I lose it all? What if I fail? I really didn't see myself as an entrepreneur at that time. So I didn't have this confidence that, oh yeah, I'll totally make it if I leave my job. Felt very afraid. And I also felt like a lot of the authors who I had been bringing in, because I was leading talks at Google for about a year right before I left, I was worried that nobody would even want to be my friend if I left. I know that sounds silly to say now, but that 
the value I could offer to people was to get them in the door at Google. And without that, who was I? So just as a practice, I started making myself also say, all right, fine. It's fine to have the fear-based thought. What if I go broke? What if I fail? At least I'm going to also ask myself, but what if I earn twice as much in half the time? And you know the parable about we have two wolves inside of us and which one wins the one you feed. I had that in my head and I felt like, I don't know which one's going to win, but I know that I at least need to create a second wolf. Like I cannot just have the thought of what if I go broke? And to this day as a business owner, it's easy to get into that fear-based thinking. So over time, as the years went on and I started to, I made it past six months and I made it past a year, I also realized it's not just about time and money. It's also about working with a sense of joy and ease. And then later I tacked on this piece for the highest good of all involved, that what good is running, in my mind, what good is running a business if I'm being a jerk to my team or my clients aren't happy or it's not benefiting the broader community and collective So that's how the whole question formed and has marinated over this last decade. There's so many business concepts that are thrown around in the entrepreneurial world and are deemed as this, you know, sexy thing that we should all strive for that you so beautifully redefine in the book. And one of them is high net growth. You know, there's a lot of talk about what is your high net worth? And you talk about high net growth, and I think it so beautifully expands what you just shared. So what is that and how can we approach that? Yeah, I feel that it's so easy to measure ourselves about how much money we have in the bank. And certainly not you and your listeners, but it's just falling into that trap of aiming for money or more of whatever more is. High net growth is for people who are not just asking, what am I earning, but what am I learning? How am I growing and expanding? I know that's one of your big driving passions and themes here. And then in addition to high net growth, I find a lot of us, especially business owners, are high net freedom. That it's, yes, it's about are we learning and growing, but also what's the level of choice we have in our life about what we work on, with whom, when we work on it. And that high net freedom, that value will sometimes supersede the value for money that you might move into a tiny home, you know, to have a place that's your own, or you might make certain choices that aren't just optimizing for how much you can get or earn, but how much freedom that you create. And that that freedom, I loved what you said on my show about abundance, that abundance isn't just about money. It's about the trees, the birds that would be outside your window, about your time, your energy, your attention, your friendships, There's so much richness in the world that goes beyond the construct that is money. Oof, did I need to hear that right now? I just did my tax prep to submit to my accountant for 2021. And I made more than I thought that I made in terms of revenue. I had higher expenses because I ran a mastermind and I hired a lot of different people and healers to be part of it. So the expenses were higher than ever this year. And so my net profit and, you know, take home money for me personally wasn't that high. And I've been like really sitting and marinating in that. And what you're saying is just making me present to the fact that just how much other success that can't be measured in money, how much joy and adventure I experienced, how much I've grown 
in my relationship with Eric and my relationship with myself and what we did to the property in the past year. And I wasn't at all taking any of those things into account as I was sort of measuring myself based on the revenue that I brought in the past year. I know. It's funny that we're recording right around tax time. I learned there's a word ferocophobia of people who are afraid of tax time. Because <laughs> <I didn't know laughs> it is, it's such an obscure, talk about bureaucracy. It's such this obscure, stressful process with these deadlines and getting so many details together. And I love what you're sharing about just this reflection. I don't know about you, but you know, as you said, sometimes you look at the balance sheet and the profit, the take home at the end of it all isn't quite what you expected. Certainly that was the case for me. In 2021, I actually gave myself permission not to earn any money at all, which is very rare for me because I usually, I've been having side hustles and jobs since I was 11 years old. Money has been so fundamental to me. I have, for your listeners will, will understand that I have my son, Saturn, and Pluto in my second house. And so it's just this driving focus and yet the Pluto energy is this death and rebirth constantly in terms of my finances. Not constantly, but in big waves, in big transitional times. So in 2021, I was in the red for the first time in 11 years. And it was so, so interesting to go to that edge of spending more and more and more and investing on total faith that it will work out and knowing that it might not, that all the money I'm investing could be like some of the stupidest decisions I've ever made, or in hindsight, they're going to look brilliant, but it's very edgy to reinvest and to go past the edges of what we're used to investing for growth and for creation, like creating what's next. And yet part of it, I realized that that is part of the flow as well. Like I sold a property I owned in Cal Northern California that I had owned for 13 years and I sold it to fund this next book and my activities and breaks in nature in 2021. And that's that was kind of wild because to let go of what feels like a very real asset, like a potential roof over my head for my myself that thinks about security in the material world, to put it toward a creative endeavor, you know, that's just, that's just ooh, it's very edgy, just like you were describing. And yet I think there's something that feels... I don't know. I, I think that's part of what drives some of us to these entrepreneurial adventures is that these leaps of faith and these moments of decision and that inherent to the process and to the growth involved that we don't know exactly how it's all going to shake out. And also it's interesting that tax time comes around or we look at our P&L statement. And as I said in the book, like we don't put time on there. So we have our tax return. We have our gross revenue, operating expenses, and net profit, but nowhere do people really talk about how much time they invested to get there. So even on other podcasts, we hear entrepreneurs talking about, oh, I earned seven figures last year. Okay, great. But did you spend eight to get there? Or did you and your team burn out and work around the clock and barely see your family in order to achieve that? Like, I'm just so interested in knowing what actually is required for the numbers that people talk about. Yes, I have... Uh a TikTok that I saw the other day, it says me trying to figure out why the government knows exactly what my income tax is going to be, but makes me do it myself. And if I'm wrong, it's a felony. That made me LOL. It's so funny. And, you know, to what you're saying, I love that we're able to have this transparent conversation because I think overall, there's just so many different myths around being an entrepreneur and 
all of these labels that come with being a successful one. I am guilty when I just got into like the six figure revenue bracket of using that to kind of, I guess, to just feel good about myself and point to a place where I am in my business to others. And then at some point, the more I tuned into the fulfillment, the joy and ease, I realized just how irrelevant that is and how many things it could mean. You know, the revenue means nothing if the profit doesn't match it. The revenue means nothing if there isn't ease and joy. And one of the things in your book that stood out to me was the million dollar question. Will you bring that into the space? Sure. Yes. This is one of my favorite thought exercises because the answer changes. We don't always have the same response. So the the million dollar question is, I call it the million dollar client question. If a highly bureaucratic and demanding client offered you a million dollars to work with them for one year, no cancellations allowed, and you had to work 80 to 100 hour weeks doing bureaucratic busy work, you know, that's not the work you love, would you do it? And what I found interesting about asking this question, you know, you could frame it in different ways. And it's kind of an interesting one to ask friends and family. People's answers were all across the map. For me, I've always said, no, I wouldn't take it because if I died in that year, I would not be very happy. Exactly. That's what, that was the first thought in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember when I was in my early 20s and I had friends taking jobs at investment banks. They were miserable. They were sleeping under their desk. They could only sleep three hours a night. They were keeping changes of clothes at the office. They were not being treated very well. And I remember thinking, I wouldn't want that job for a day. I don't care what that might lead to down the road, what type of wealth it could create later on, I wouldn't do it for a day, for even a week. And that alone is a sort of privileged thought to have. Because some people, when I asked this question, said, well, I have worked that way for that bureaucratic client for far less money. So they said, if I could do it for a million, I would. Or other people said, well, it depends. You know, if in their own endeavors, they would never have even a chance to earn that kind of money. Yes, of course, they would do it for a year and then be able to provide for their family and do all the things that are so important to them. For those of us who run our own businesses, the answer gets a little tricky or, or not. Like I had, you know, one friend, Wade, who I feature in the book, who had a cancer scare. She lost her mom to cancer. She had Hodgkin's lymphoma in her early 20s. And she's someone who said, no, my health is precious to me. And there's no dollar amount that I'll trade that for because of what she learned going through her own health experience. And so those of us who are entrepreneurs, we will often say like, no, actually, I wouldn't trade that year because I could be generating my own abundance. Maybe it's a million, maybe it's more than a million. Who are we to say? But kind of like your reaction, Ksenia, and I'm curious to hear more of how you, what came to mind when you first read that question, that time is too precious and life is too short, that I, I wouldn't be willing to risk six months of being miserable not knowing if it would be my last, as grim as that is to say. Yeah, my first thought was exactly that. What if it's my last year? It would be terrible to have spent it like that. But my other thought was, well, I guess I could do a year because then I can invest that million. I'm doing this program right now called the Factoria Wealth Circle and learning all about managing money and investing and just feeling super empowered in the area. I'll be doing more episodes on that. But 
I'm just seeing how if I made that million and I invested even just half of it, more like three quarters of it, I probably would be set to retire a lot sooner than most people and be financially free. Another interesting label that we throw around a lot. But to me, that would be a very solid investment into the future. But at the same time, you know, it's like, I think I would just have to consult my intuition on that one to really make the decision to see, is this something that I'm meant to do? Is this something that would provide more growth than suffering? Right. Oh, that's the best answer yet. I wish I would have put that in the book. Right. Like we can only know in the moment with our intuition. I also have the thought when I hear this question that the negative health impact is also not something I feel like it's a little bit playing with fire because when I work in a way that isn't authentic to me, I don't know if you get this. I say my body has me on a short leash. If I start veering off track too much, I will just get slammed with stuff, whether it's vertigo or bronchitis or a thyroid condition. I have had something called Graves' disease that never goes away, but it's under control now. And so these things will occur when I start working against my own values and integrity. And that's the other thing that comes to mind for me with this question is, could I even make it a year? What if there were lasting health impacts as a result of that stress? I'm not willing to risk that as well. Yes, exactly. Another question that you bring in the book that really I'm so called to share with everyone listening is by Paul Selig. And it is, are you ordering off your yesterday's menu? Or as you rephrased it, are you ordering off yes, your yesterday's business menu? I would love you to talk more about that. And specifically in the context of how this question invited you to shift your business during 2020, 2021. I love that you pulled this out because I don't know if you're aware of Paul Selig's work, but he's a channel. So this quote that you read is channeled by his guides and um, he has a whole series of books. I didn't even finish this book because when I got to this section and this inquiry, it was it just hit me so hard. And the guides that he channeled basically said, you know, where in your life are you ordering off of yesterday's menu? The, where the courses, literally the dishes have changed. And yet we still think we have yesterday's options and yesterday's way of doing things. And we all know that menus change. Let's say if you go to a nice restaurant, they change by the season. They have daily specials. There's all kinds of things that could shift and evolve. What ingredients are available? And so I, it's so visceral for me, this, this imagining holding up a menu of my past life or my past self. And in a very real sense, I just came back from South by Southwest where I did my first speaking gig in a long time and nothing in my closet fits. It's as if my closet is a pre-pandemic self that definitely weighed 20 pounds less, <laughs> but even the clothes, the structure of them, the materials, the times that I had worn them in the past, like it is such a different self that the closet is for that I don't, I hardly even relate to it anymore. So I have a friend, her name is Anne. She's coming on Saturday to do an intervention <laughs> and help me get rid of a bunch of stuff. And so this idea, you asked me how it came to pass for me in 2020, 2021. When the pandemic hit, I lost about 80% of my projected income from speaking gigs and licensing contracts that 
all got canceled within the same two weeks and not just canceled that month, canceled for the rest of the year and canceled two years into the future. That had never happened to me in my business, even no matter what economic ups and downs. So I realized that that corporate work, a lot it was a lot of the companies that tightened the belt. And that was a lot of my buffer income was those speaking gigs. Because if I could do one gig for 10 or 15,000, all I needed was one a month and it would keep the lights on. But when those all went away, I still had my private community for small business owners. That truly carried me through 2020. But I realized that maybe it's time for me to go all in on talking more publicly to and for what I call heart-based business owners. I had previously been scared. I didn't want to alienate my corporate clients, but that is almost a mirror experience of me not wanting to leave Google because Google is still a client. And here I was again saying, oh, but if I start talking about small business and entrepreneurship and I'm too vocal about that, my corporate clients won't want to hire me anymore. So I was at that very similar fork in the road. The thing is, all that income disappeared. So that is kind of what gave me the courage. That was yesterday's menu in a sense. And it gave me the courage to launch the free time podcast in March, 2021, and then get heads down and leave the city and start working on the book, which is then where I crossed paths with you a few months later. And I realized that part of worrying that companies wouldn't hire me anymore was also scarcity thinking in a sense, because what where my heart was, what carried me through 2020 were my small business owner friends and colleagues and private community members. We carried each other. That's where my heart was. That's what I had been talking about behind the scenes, behind a paywall for 10 years. But I also had never given myself permission that I knew enough about business to talk about it publicly. I think parts of me also felt self-conscious, like, well, I don't earn a million dollars every year, seven figures, all the glamorous things that I hear some business podcasters and and leaders talk about. So I hesitated, but that's yesterday's menu. And when the pandemic hit, I realized today's menu is having the courage and taking a risk and following my heart, not knowing where it's going to lead, not knowing if companies will want to hire me for what's in free time, but Hoping that, as you'd always talk about too on this show, that the universe will provide if it's what's meant to be. Mm, yeah, as you say in your book, it's this decision to stop sailing the sea of shiny shoulds. Yes. And they're so shiny. That's what makes some people have asked me, what are shiny shoulds? Sometimes I call them sexy shoulds. We know about shoulds that are easy to drop, you know, things that are an obvious no. But the shiny ones are, for each of us, it's different. The ones that are kind of this compelling siren, like, are you sure you don't want to be doing this? Or you really should, like, the, you know, just what we see other people doing online. I know you are so just brilliant with social media. For me, social media is a shiny shed. It's a, like, even just the other day, someone suggested I start a LinkedIn newsletter. And, um, It's a shiny should because it's compelling. I I totally understand the logic. But you know what? It's plenty for me to keep up with my own two newsletters on my own websites. (laughs) So I just feel like I had to I have to say no. Doesn't matter. It could be a great thing, but it's not great enough to dilute my attention in that way. I'm so excited to share with you that my number one podcasting tool since day one of this podcast. Zencaster is sponsoring this episode. 
I remember when I first started my podcast, it seemed like solving a tech puzzle. But I've been using Zencaster since day one, and honestly, it's made it so easy. It provides crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. What I love about it is that it records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is super customized. Plus, they offer secured cloud backups, and I've never lost a single episode. It's super easy to use, there's nothing to download, and my guests just have to click on the link and we start recording. I recently got to try their automatic post-production, and it's so good. I'm a huge fan of Zencaster. If you're a podcaster or you're thinking about starting a podcast, Zencaster has a special deal for my listeners. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code KSENIA, all capitals, my name, to get 30% off your first three months with pro account. It includes unlimited audio and video recordings, hosting up to four guests at once, audio and video mixing, and unlimited English transcriptions. You get a 14-day trial and can always downgrade to the free account if you choose to. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com forward slash pricing, promo code Xenia, all caps, or click the link in the show notes to get that 30% off. It's time to share your story. I definitely want to get more into social media with you, but before we get there, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into how you made those business decisions in the last couple of years. I know in the book, you speak about building your business intuition and serendipity as a business strategy. So how do you approach making those decisions? Do you sit down and tune into it and how it feels in your body? Do you make lists? Is it kind of just a download and a hit and you act on it? What is your process in making those business decisions? It's all of the above. It's all of the above. I feel that my intuition, because I've been so, I love my intuition. All of us, all of us have it. And I cherish mine so much. Not me, Jenny, but just like the fact that we have this gift of intuition. I just think it's the biggest miracle. And so I've been cultivating it ever since I have to thank Penny Pierce because I read her book, The Intuitive Way in 2014 or 2015. And that's really where I started to pay attention and nurture and cultivate it, which is how intuition strengthens within us the more that we do pay attention and honor it and cultivate it. So for example, free time was a hit. It was a total download. Like I think I was walking or showering as it goes, but just the phrase free time dropped in. And when it drops in like that, it's so powerful that I, I know. And then I'll run it by a few friends. I'll say, what do you think? This download came to me. What do you think of free time? You know, it's, it's both a concept. It's also a verb. It's kind of got to play on words. It's, it's why I love systems. So once I get the download, I can reverse engineer a little bit and go, huh, does this work? And well, yeah, I do love systems and I love efficiency and I love technology and I love being smarter with it all and automation. I geek out over this stuff. Why? And I realize if I if I were to just tell, you know, write a book called like Smarter Systems, people will fall asleep. So what are systems for? They are for this goal of freeing our time, freeing our mind, time and team to do our best work, as I say. So it's partly a download. And then here's one of my rants. I love you and I will get on these uh, rants, <laughs> both when we're on a podcast and offline. I cannot stand this advice where people say, don't trust your intuition in business. Like, 
it's all in the data. You have to look at the data. The data doesn't lie. And that, oh, your intuition is what's going to get you lost in the woods and turned around and you're not going to know how to find your way out. Oh my goodness. It just couldn't be further from what I feel is the truth, which is that what is intuition? It is thousands of data points from our life that are living underneath the surface that are what allow us to look at a person, see their eyes and know if they are a good person or not. I'm sure all of you listening have had this experience where somebody just has a dark energy or you look at their eyes and you know that there's something shifty about them or it's a micro expression. I know, Ksenia, you and Eric in various points of your life have gone looking at properties. Well, Michael and I, one time we we saw this real estate agent and he was like so smiling and friendly. It honestly came across as quite fake. But the flash of a micro expression he gave us at the end as we were leaving, Michael and I shuddered and we're like, no effing way. We don't care how nice that house is. We're not taking it. And so I just think that intuition is a business skill. It is a vital one. To me, it is the only one. Like, I don't care what the data says. If my intuition, the let's say the hard numbers, I don't care what they say. Because if my intuition is telling me stop doing something or start doing something else, even if the data doesn't support it, my intuition, I feel, is light years ahead of the data. So you really opened up <laughs> you opened up my can of worms around this and I just feel that you get it. So that's why I'm like sharing the real the real behind this chapter in this section of the book. And uh, I do all the other things too, you know, I make lists, I talk to friends. I think friend tours and masterminds are so powerful to just see what we might not always see in ourselves. Like that phrase, you know, you can't read the label from inside the jar. I do think mastermind groups are incredibly powerful for reflecting back strengths and areas of possibility. And most of mine are not ones I pay to be in. It's just with my friends. When would you say you hear your intuition the loudest? It's just always with me. I guess that's what's when I'm meant to move in a big new direction. That's when the downloads will be these like loud, powerful impressions I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if you go so far as to say like clear audience or there's all these different forms of, of extrasensory information. So mine comes as like almost a word imprint in my, my mind. It's loud when I need it to be loud. And, and I hear it when, when I need to hear it. And just the other day I was asking for a nonlinear breakthrough, which I talk about in the book, AKA, as you said, a miracle Yes, around our house cleanliness. Like it's driving me bonkers to live in a cluttered environment, but my husband just doesn't see clutter. It doesn't bother him. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. And I just hit this point of exhaustion and exasperation and frustration. And I'm like, I don't want to keep fighting about this issue. Like I just want to solve it. And I had just come back from a friend's house who, because she has a child, she has a nanny and the nanny is also a house manager. And, the, and as house manager, she breaks down boxes and tidies the house every day. And so part of my entrepreneurial mind will kick in. And, and first I'll ask for the miracle or the nonlinear breakthrough and just say, please show me a way out of this because I'm stuck here. And so in those moments, I'm asking for intuition and I'm asking for guidance because I feel so stuck. And I know this sounds really small and trivial, maybe to some of you listening, but for me, my space is my oxygen. It's like I can't breathe without 
a clear space. And yet I'm not one of these OCD types that will like run around my house doing it all because I'm running the business. I'm doing a lot already. And so this is where then I'll get creative and I'll say, okay, is there a dollar amount that what would it cost to bring someone in to literally tidy every day and leave the house a little cleaner than when she walked in the door? Because that alone would prevent this descent into chaos. That is metaphorical as well. You could apply everything I'm saying to house chaos to business chaos. And what would that cost? Okay, great. If there's a number I can put to it, how can I generate that number? Can I ask for a nonlinear breakthrough in my earnings? That if I'm meant to find some peace around this and we've tried everything else, what could I try next? And if it's a dollar amount, how could I get creative about generating that? Uh, the phrase that comes to mind as you share this is overwhelm is the abundance you asked for something from your book. And <laughs> right. I'm thinking, you know, we're very similar that way. We both have very creative, in my case, messy in some ways, husband. Yep. <laughs> and I, I did ask for him and he comes with this side effect of mess and overflowing basket with his things and sometimes not putting the dishes where I want him to. And at our couch, we have two poofs, which we also use as little coffee tables where we put our food when we're eating. And he has this habit of when he's done eating, he puts his empty plate on my poof so I can't put my legs up or, you know, use it however I want to when I'm ready. So I asked him about a thousand times in the past year to stop putting his dirty plate there. Then I realized, well, hold on, let's expand the rule. I'm going to ask him not to put anything ever on my poof. And it seems extreme but it still doesn't work. And I've been spending so much energy, especially in the past few days since we came back from Austin, of just like reminding him dozens of times a day, don't do this. This is not where we put dishes. And at some point, I think there needs to be, as I'm reminded by you just now, this point of like surrender and prayer. You know, this is taking up too much of my brain space and of my energy. How can I surrender this? How can I release? Because it's not the act of asking him to do it or even choosing to do it myself because it would take me like five seconds, but it's the energy of resistance and judgment that's behind it. That's taking so much of my life force away. And who's does it harm in the end? Not him. It's me. Right. Well, that's exactly it. And it's so hard not to take it personally. Like I told you this was important to me and you're not respecting me. It feels like at some point it becomes this like respect issue that I don't, I know it's not important to you, something's on my poof, but it is to me. And and I, I always used to remind myself, Byron Katie, like, well, if you're the one noticing it, like this is what got me through the early days around dishes and stuff would be, oh, if I'm the one noticing it, then it must be my job to do. And I, I've just like you, I've gotten Michael to help out a little more with dishes and, and things, but his default state is to put everything on the floor <laughs> as well. <laughs> like, wherever is convenient in that moment, it just, things will go. And I'm sure some people listening will just be like, well, they got to just change. But you and I both know, Ksenia, that's just not like that because they don't see it. And they are both artists and it is abundance. I never even thought I would be married. I never thought I would have the house we have in New York and a husband and a dog. So it is overwhelm is the abundance in a way I was asking for. But 
Exactly. Like we're the ones suffering, you know, in the Byron Katie framework, it's like, we're the ones suffering. They're not around this issue. And it, it also creates suffering to always be harping on them and to always have to ask. So it's like, what is the nonlinear breakthrough out of that tug of war? You, My friend Christine calls it the sacred third solution out of this, what feels like, well, I said this, well, you didn't do it. Well, stop nagging me, you know, like whatever that dynamic is, what's the transcendent sacred third. And that's why as silly as it may sound to some of you, I'm like, if I just had someone that was coming in like a tidying fairy (laughs) every day for an hour, that it didn't have to be me. That is a sacred third solution. It's not the only one, but it is one that I feel a little happier when I think of it. I love that. And I think in my case, because we live in a remote tiny home and I can't even fathom the idea of someone coming into clean, I think honestly it would be stopping obsessing over it because I know that historically in the past, the moment I stop obsessing, there's like an energy field that lifts and he actually starts doing all the things I want to be doing. Right. Yes. And then the energy. I've. This is one of the best books I've ever read on relationships and it's called Why Talking is Not Enough. And one of the, she has these seven super powerful chapters and one of them is restraint. So can you practice not criticizing anything? Cause it's most, let's be real. Like often it's, I mean, we have people of all genders listening in all pairs of relationships, I'm sure. But let's say in relationships, often it's the woman who's like a little pickier about what's going on in the house. And she's like, can you practice restraint for 24 hours? See how many times you would have said something or corrected them or asked for something to be different or ask because they're all subtle ways of asking for another person to change. And when I've tried that practice and I try to withhold for 24 hours, not saying a damn thing, it's incredible the energy that is created the next day. Like he's singing, whistling while doing dishes because all of a sudden he just feels like being generous, you know, and it's like, damn. And we've talked about it, but like I, I created that by not being in this critical energy that is sending a subtle message that who you are and how you are is not correct. Yes, exactly. Oof, I'm going to get a dedicated notebook to this and start practicing restraint and do a little heart or like a check mark every time I don't say something. And I just have a feeling there's so much available on the other side of it because on a deeper level, I know that me criticizing my partner is an indication of both other issues that are beyond that, that I'm not willing to address both in him and in me. Yeah, totally. And just that I often will turn the tables and I go, if someone was telling me where to put everything down all day, I would lose my mind. <laughs> you I would know, fire so sometimes them. I'll <laughs> totally I'll be like, who do you think you are telling me where to put my things? <laughs> you know? So I laugh. I'm laughing because when I imagine turning the tables and, and I go, Oh, he's actually quite patient for how much of my peculiarity or particularity around how I like my space, how much he actually does put up with so I can get into a state of gratitude and also gratitude for his wild creative imagination mind. Like his inner landscape is so rich. And yes, it is reflected in our home and the outside. But again, if it bothers me, I can get more creative about solving it. And it's not to say that any one person in the relationship has to do all the work, but if it's a thing you care about, I hate to say it, but it is going to be yours to solve because they don't give, they just don't <laughs> care. Yes. Yes. It's this powerful 
shift from criticism into gratitude that truly unlocks miracles. And when I tuned into that, there's so many ways that being with Eric has offered me growth. There's so many ways that he pushes me to think bigger. The experience of renovating our property and him holding this vision in a way where I didn't even know I could. And you know, coaching me in my business and helping me close bigger contracts and being an open communicator in our relationship. There's so many things that he has brought into my life. And what if just for like a day or a week, I chose to focus on those things that I'm grateful for and think about them when I wake up and not the pile of clothes that's overflowing on the floor? Yes, I agree. And I feel like that's so, it's so true. This is something you and I talked about over cold brew in the summer was that that frequency of gratitude and abundance and appreciating what is, I just find, I mean, I know everyone listening, like this is not news to you, but it just can be so easy to click out of gratitude and into what's missing or what's next. And that's kind of the the big secret of free time. What I say in the book is like, free time isn't out there. It's not in the future. Like we don't earn free time that one day when I've worked hard enough, when I've achieved enough, then I'll be able to create free time. It's a frequency just like everything else. Just like it's kind of is so closely related to gratitude because free time is now. It's today. It is the way to creating more time and spaciousness. Just as gratitude is the way to creating more abundance by appreciating what we have. And that that I find that frequency and that energy of gratitude and joy and ease and equanimity is what's magnetic to other people. That is what's more compelling. That is what's more interesting. That is why we're all drawn to your podcast, Sandia, and to you, because you bring a very special energy that shines through everything you create. And that's what I think is missing from so much of the conversation around business. It's as if whatever we achieve is what's magnetizing to people to us. And you know what? Maybe for a lot of people that is, but the people that I want to attract see through that, (laughs) you know? But it is about the energy. And I find when I'm in that energy, I also attract the people that I'm most excited to be surrounded by in business. Yes. And I was just on the flight from Austin to New York. I was listening to Michael Beckwith. I was just intuitively guided to him. He keeps coming up on my Instagram feed. And every time I see one of his sermons, every cell of my being is just in this remembrance and excitement and resonance. And one of the, it was a Mind Valley podcast and it was a speech that he gave at one of their events. And one of the things he said that was a total reframe for me is you're not attracting, you're radiating. So it's this idea that you don't even have to attract anything to yourself. Your only job is to go out there and emanate your full self and radiate your full self. And the rest is not up to you. I love that. I love that. I think that's been fun watching your podcast shift and evolve in that now it's your name. And like you said, you know, this is me. I don't know. I just see that as such a powerful example of what he said of just radiating you and then letting each conversation take you wherever you, Ksenia, feel like in that moment. Just you seem to have opened up the box of what the show needed to be and the topics and the guests. Yeah, it's a daily practice. It's not something that I feel I've fully arrived at. And there's still some perfectionist thoughts that come in and self-doubt of, you know, should I tighten it up? Should it be more specific on certain topics? But then it's really this practice of every interview 
me getting out of the way and allowing whatever conversation is meant to unfold to unfold for the highest good of all, but also for the joy and the ease of me and the interviewee in the moment. Yeah, totally. And and like trusting, I think what gets nerve wracking, I wonder how you think about this. Always everything in business is about niching down, you know, like creating a niche or having a very clear ideal listener in mind. I feel that it takes more trust to say, I'm going to go wherever my intuition takes me and people will be interested or the right people will, or the right people will stay. So there's also more trust involved because it's not such a straight line. This is who I am. This is what it's about. This is why you're here. Yeah, for sure. It takes this trust and not being too swooped away by the shiny object syndrome and the shiny shoulds. And it's interesting right now, I'm helping as a consultant, Eric and his business partner, Social Media, they have a digital marketing agency that provides SEO services specifically to HVAC and home services contractors. So talk about niche. It's like so niche. There's about 60,000 HVAC technicians in the US. So that's the market they're going for. And, you know, the thought that constantly is in my mind when creating content for them is, is there even enough people to consume this content? Should I make it actually a little bit more broad? So it's reaching more than just HVAC contractors, which I don't know what the percentages of them that is on social media platforms, but you know, let's say it's 10%, you know, probably a pretty low number, but let's say it's 10% who are active on social media. So it's 6,000 people. Well, that's not really a viral number. There's no viral potential. There's no potential to like truly grow and reach a lot of people. So it's interesting, no matter what we end up choosing, whether that's niche or broad, like my podcast, there's always the possibility of a scarcity mindset and this linear thinking. But like you talk about in your book, we always have this choice of, okay, are we going to look at all the things that could go wrong or are we going to focus on the possibility? And kind of moving into the social media conversation, I would love to talk about how you approach it because in previous episode, when we talked about it, you just said social media is not my thing. I've been able to build a successful business without it. And even in the book, you wrote that that's not something I want to do. And it's not something I want to outsource because it would be out of integrity. And during the book launch, I was so excited to discover that you actually hired someone to post on Instagram for you. And so all of these beautiful shares of people reading your book and sharing what they're taking away from it and the stories from South by Southwest being at your presentation, it's all being captured and amplified. And to me, you know, I love social media. I love the magic of connection that it provides. And I would love to hear what your experience has been like and what it took from you to rethink how you approach it. Yeah. Oh, it's, I love that you noticed that. Um, I feel still mixed. I have to say I hired this incredible team, Stephanie Houston and uh, her cousin Haley works with her in the business. They're at Houston.love online. You can put it in the show notes, H-U-S-T-O-N. They came in to manage the BFF community. So that's my private community for small business owners. And Stephanie has been an OG community member since the earliest days six years ago. She also worked in my business. She is the reason free time exists because I wanted to capture operating principles, get them out of my head and get them on paper because she was the first 
new hire beyond this woman I had been working with for five years, Marisol, who I loved. But as Marisol wanted to transition out of her part of the role, we brought Stephanie in. And so I started capturing all these operating principles that I wanted to share with Stephanie of how we work. And that's what later became this long Google Doc. Then it became a one-hour workshop. And then eventually I turned it into a mini course, Free Up Founder Time, and now the book. So Stephanie is such a special, important person to me, and she's been there since the beginning, since life after college. She helped me throw one of the very first keynotes that I did for my first book in 2012. And she and Haley love social media so much. It's a zone of genius. They love it. They were like, JB, did you know that Ellen follows you on Twitter? (laughs) And I said, no, I had no clue. They're like, please, can we just log in and like can we just log in and just check some things out and monitor for you in case some incredible opportunity comes up and so you don't miss it. And I was kind of nervous about it because exactly, I talk all the time about how I'm not on social media and I don't want to be and I don't care. And they just, their enthusiasm was so contagious. And they're like, oh my gosh, we have these ideas and these ones. Can we post while you're at South by? Like we have all these ideas. And I think it just took me letting go and saying yes. Like I didn't have to initiate it. I didn't have the idea to do any of this. And I'm also not good at it. Therefore, it's very easy to delegate because I don't know what to do. I don't even, hadn't even logged into Twitter in years. Hadn't seen any DMs. So what's great is that, and it's same thing with Instagram. What's great is like their enthusiasm was so contagious. They know what they're doing. Stephanie even had me, this was so brilliant. She had me create a link tree, get the QR code. Then she created a background image for my phone that had the link tree QR code so that while I was networking at South by, people could easily scan it and get all my links and contact info. So those kinds of ideas where she was just bringing so much to the table. The one thing I said to them is, listen, I'm very public about not wanting to be on social media. So please sign everything from you. I don't want, I don't want you to ghostwrite for me. I personally feel that with ghostwriting, there's a ghost in the process. Like, you know, I say with, with ghostwriting a book, there's a ghost in the book. Like the author's soul is not quite in it. And every now and then it can be done well and it can work. But I feel that I know I could kind of in an intuitive way sense when the author's soul is in the book or not. That's so weird to say. And I don't mean that in a creepy way. I Listen, if you're a celebrity and you don't have time to write the book, just put with so-and-so on the cover. That's just what I think is weird is pretending as if they wrote it. A lot of ghostwriters, the way they work is conducting many, many hours of interviews with the person. And then, so it is their words and their stories, but still I feel that that person should get credit. I just think it's very bizarre to, I don't know, something doesn't strike me as an integrity with ghostwriting. I'm trying not to judge anybody that that's the right thing for them or this is your profession. So with social, I just said, you know, don't write as me, just make it clear that it's you. And I love the way Stephanie and Haley have done it. They just are like, we're taking over JB's feed. And I have heard from so many people from all parts of my life who are commenting and reaching out. And to be honest, if I'm being truly honest, some of that overwhelms me, like the amount of texts and comments. Now I feel guilty. Oh, this person from 10 years ago, I haven't spoken to, I should reply. So immediately it also sparks the guilt and the kind of social overwhelm that I tend to feel that is part of the reason that I'm not on long-term, but for the launch, it's really fun. And it feels like a completely worthwhile experiment that we may or may not continue afterward, but that their contagious joy 
and skill and passion for it is carrying me through. I love that you share so transparently about both the upsides of it and the overwhelm that it brings. And something that has been a guiding principle for me that I'm called to share here is something that Michelle Sinney, who mentored me in 2021, and I know who you resonated with a lot from the podcast as well, is this idea that your only job is to put what you are being called to put out there and what happens to it next, whether that's the number of views or likes or comments or questions is not up to you. And I know in the book, you speak about the importance of staying in your lane and how when you first released your first book, Pivot, or not your first book, your second book, right? Yeah. Life After College was the first one, 2011, and then Pivot was 2016. So you were saying how when you released Pivot, you were obsessively checking the Amazon rankings. And I would compare that to what my brain sometimes wants to do with social media. I post something and then I keep updating it and seeing, oh, how many views did it get? Is it resonating? Is it going to go viral? And this checking of how it's doing out there takes up so much of the life force energy that could be going into nourishing my inner world or building connections in real life or creating something new. And I would love you to speak about that. And I also want to invite you to uh, see if it resonates to apply this principle to responding to people, you know, and knowing that even Michelle even shared with me that, you know, when she opens up her email inbox, she kind of just energetically tunes into what am I meant to respond to, what goes straight into trash and what I will revisit later. And because we get something in our inbox, like you mentioned, Elizabeth Gilbert says, it's like a guest showing up at your house unannounced, uninvited. It's not your job to host them and make them a cup of cacao. <laughs> right. That was my addition, yes. yeah, just to clarify. <laughs> I love that addition. Right. She says it's like people exactly showing up unannounced in your living room and that she realized she did was not obligated to respond to them. And I also, I also love what Ann Patchett shared, which is so in line with what you're saying and I freaking resonate so much with Michelle's work. I, I don't know her personally, you do, but she's so brilliant. I love even that intuitive approach to email that Ann Patchett said, I'm doing the work and that's where it ends. Like I'm not on social. I'm not in a text. I don't have a cell phone. I don't text message. Everything you could ever want to know about me is in my book. And I'm paraphrasing. We can find the exact quote. Yeah, pivot. Pivot, I actually didn't check the rankings because of this exact reason. I actually didn't care. By the time Pivot was coming out, I had already read Tosha Silver a few years prior. And I just thought, I am marketing this book with serendipity and magic. That is my marketing strategy. Serendipity and magic. What is meant to be will be that I do feel putting public original thinking like a book out into the world. We mentioned serendipity popcorn at the beginning. I think it's like tossing a bunch of popcorn seeds or actual seeds from a garden and you toss them out into the world. And like, what I love is that feeling of I have no clue what's going to pop up when and from whom. So people, I have author friends who are like shocked that they would ask me, oh, what's your ranking or are you checking? I'm like, oh, I haven't checked in months. I, I don't know. <laughs> You know, and I'm not, not only am I not screenshotting, making the list, I just don't really care. Um, sometimes I'll care because of the, the game of it. I think as humans and part of the human game is it's fun to have targets and kind of like aim for them, but held super loosely. And so, yeah, the, the thing about responding to people, I love your invitation to let that go. I guess there's just... I don't know, like I said it at a dinner with friends the other night that I treat texts 
more like emails. I don't respond right away. Sometimes I respond next day, sometimes in a week, sometimes not at all, or six months later. Same thing with email. I just dropped any sense of urgency around it. In fact, I wrote back to one person two years later to the day. (laughs) They were mortified. Like their level of shock and mortification, it kind of, it felt bad actually. I felt like, oh no. Am I really offending people? And Wait, how do you know how they responded to it? Because we were in person. Uh, yeah, we were live. And they were like, what? <laughs> like, don't you feel bad? Like, their reaction was so shocked. They're just like, oh, I would never want my friends and family to feel like I didn't care about them. And, you know, that's where I have a hard time dropping, you know, the guilt, I guess, because there are so many people I care about in this world. That's That's what I get stuck on is that. I don't know if you feel this way, Ksenia. I'm, I'm really, uh, this is something I've been sitting with a lot recently. As a highly sensitive person, let's say, as a super introvert, I am just overwhelmed by communication. And I know it's ironic because I'm writing a book, but I feel like Ann Patchett, like the best I have of myself, the best I can give is in this book. My purpose on this planet is to be a messenger and to do it through books primarily and my podcast, but that this is my gift. This is what I can do. But I feel constantly and consistently overwhelmed by the number of incoming pings from people I really respect, appreciate, and care about. And it's just always at a level higher than I feel I can manage. Talk about needing a nonlinear breakthrough. And it's like the pace of communication in today's day and age and the fact that they come through texts on the phone or emails or all these different inboxes it's more people. And the, what's crazy is that they're not obvious things to ignore. I think if, I think ignoring the obvious, I do do that, but it's the rest. It's that the, they're ambiguous because it's people I do care about and I'm already overwhelmed. So that's what makes me stuck is that I feel like my threshold for it is so low compared to what other people seem to be able to handle keeping up with. Running a business as a super introvert. I love that framing and I totally resonate with what you're saying. And when I truly, you know, shine the light within myself or of where this desire to be nice and please people comes from, it's from not enoughness. It's that I need to do something on top of what I'm already doing to be good enough. And so in the past year with working with Michelle, I've sort of been releasing this expectation to please people or to make them happy, make them comfortable. That's not my job. And if me not responding for two years makes them uncomfortable, I'm going to trust that there's something in this discomfort that was actually for their growth. <laughs> and once I started thinking that way, it's really opened up so much, you know, because I think what was eating me from the inside was the guilt, the guilt that I put on myself for not being as responsive as I think I should be. But as soon as that guilt goes away, And I find the courage, not always, but I'm doing it more and more to communicate with people that this is my style. I'm going to respond when I'm called to. The more I do that, the more freedom it creates in every area of my life. And it's just talk about free time. It's opened up a lot of free time. (laughs) Yeah. and, And then it eliminates that buzz, the micro guilt that's humming in the background. And I love, I mean, what's funny is you and I still manage to keep up with each other and connect and schedule these interviews, you know, even with both of our styles being this way, when we're meant to connect, we do. And just yesterday I had a, I interviewed a dear friend, Jamie Varon. She just wrote a book called Radically Content. And we had not spoken in years, but we were early Twitter friends from 2008, 2009. 
And when we got on video, I have chills just now saying it out loud. We had not spoken in years. When we got on video, we looked at each other and we were like, it's as if no time has passed. We looked at it. We were like, "We this could be 2008 and we're about to eat a cupcake. <laughs> we could do these cupcake tweet ups. It was incredible. It was as if no time had passed. We had a great conversation. We had all the same love and affection. It didn't go anywhere because Jamie is also this way as a person. And I, I like, you know, Glennon Doyle in, in Untamed. It made me so relieved because it was the, one of the first people in addition to Liz Gilbert and Ann Padgett who just owned, she says there's a chapter in Untamed where she goes, I am not a good friend. (laughs) And I guess that's what I get self-conscious about is I feel that I'm not a great friend the way some people define it. I'm not always the best. I'm not either. I'm just going to put it out there. (laughs) I'm always, yeah, like the best at remembering everybody's birthday and sending cards every year at Christmas and getting gifts and texting on the right occasions and proactively placing phone calls because I don't even have enough alone time for myself or like my grandma. I don't have it in me to like be placing calls while I'm on the go. So yeah, I'm not a great, I'm not a great friend. So anyone like you who's still around, I feel that you must appreciate, like you said, must appreciate what it is that I do have to offer. Even in spite of the fact that my gift is not to be the most consistent, outreaching, extroverted friend. It's just not, it's just not, it's just not in me. But I love my friends, you know, I love them and I want to support them and I, I really do what I can. And so I was like holding both at the same time. Yes. And, you know, when I tune into this, I appreciate my friends who are very intentional and remember every event and, and send me a card. But I can say that that's why I appreciate them more than other friends. It's just the depth of connection and everything else is just a nice bonus on top of that. Totally. And it's, I know, like, I appreciate that in other people so much as well. And this is another area of, I guess, compare and despair. Like, I have to honor how I do show up. Like, one of my friends said, your love language is putting people in your books and or having them on my podcast. You know, I swear the podcast having two shows is the reason I have friends at all. <laughs> like, the reason I have colleagues at all is that in creating something, I can connect with people. And it makes me really happy to do that because I I love, it gives me energy to have conversations like this and know that other people can benefit at the same time. Not that every call with a friend has to be a podcast, certainly not, but it does feel like a joyful container for connecting. And so I have to give myself permission, I guess, to not compare to what type of friend I need to be. Permission granted. (laughs) Thank you, Ksenia. (laughs) And thank you for always being patient with my response time, whatever it may be. Oh, I totally get it. And I love that we're speaking about this because I think it will unlock that same inner permission within anyone else who this way speaks to. And I would love to move into some free time advice, particularly the things that stand out that I'm going to invite you to take us into is one, founder time, and two, building a delightfully tiny team. And the second one, the delightfully tiny team has been a shocker and a revelation for me because I have some contractors like podcast editing team that help me and, you know, some other people along the way, like an accountant, but I don't have a team that's always there and has been there for years. And I thought that that's like this big move and I don't want to manage people. And in your book, you talk about how you have three people spending about 
five hours a week. And five hours seems so much more reasonable than what my brain was making up when I thought I want to hire someone to work for me consistently. So thank you for demystifying that. And I would love you to speak more about that. Sure. Yeah. Well, starting on the delightfully tiny team side, why do you think it is that I want a delightfully tiny team? Same as you. I want freedom. I don't want to be a manager. And just like how I'm not a great, I don't think I'm a great friend. I'm not a great manager. I'm okay at it. But where I thrive is being by myself, you know, reading, thinking, writing, podcasting, systems building. So I don't seek to become a manager as my day-to-day. For that reason, the delightfully tiny team is how do we have you know, we talk about MVP, minimum viable product. It's almost like minimum viable team because without that, the owner is the bottleneck. And I find that that also creates a sense of tremendous stress and pressure that if I do step away, it all falls apart. It all stops. I don't like to live like that either. So the sweet spot for me is where nobody works full time, including me. I work about 20 to 25 hours a week on average. It's different when I'm launching a book. And my team members, what I have found is that hiring one person to do everything at like 20 hours a week, usually their skills and their energy strengths are not appropriate for all those areas. So it would be very difficult to have the same person, it's not impossible, but have the same person be an audio editor and love that, manage client relationships and love that, respond to email and love that, um, be on social media and love that. You know, there's all these things in the business that it's kind of, they're contrasting in terms of what type of person is going to thrive and where their energy is. So for example, I mentioned Stephanie and Haley. They love community managing and social media. Amazing. But they would hate the nitty gritty of podcast project management. And I mean, hate it, (laughs) you know, it's not where they're going to thrive. So I hired a a team called One Stone Creative. And they, what's nice about hiring out an entire team is that I'm also not the bottleneck for all the questions. So with One Stone Creative, Megan, who's the co-founder, runs her own delightfully tiny team where she takes the life of an episode through, or at least a point person on their side, through guest prep, audio editing, show notes prep, scheduling, et cetera. And even they'll help with creating social assets or emailing the guests to say it's live. So what I like about, you know, part of creating a delightfully tiny team is for me now, I'm realizing how joyful it is to hire another small team because they have each other to ask for a lot of the small questions along the way. I just hired two VAs actually, and I don't even love the term assistant. It kind of makes me cringe, but two uh, virtual assistants slash I call them project managers from a service called Squared Away. So that's military spouses. And one is just going to be in my inboxes, talk about email and trying to create a nonlinear breakthrough. And the other one's going to manage our coaching programs. So pivot coaching or free time coaching. And they have each other. Not only do they have each other because they were friends prior to working with me, they have their squared away Slack and inner internal network where when they don't know how to do something, they're able to ask each other. So I'm finding a lot of joy. And Stephanie and Haley, Haley is earlier in her career. Steph has decades of experience. Haley is able to bounce things off Stephanie. So this has created a lot of relief. Whereas sometimes in the past when I've hired somebody who I don't already know through my community or who doesn't already have their own business and delightfully tiny team, it's a little more stressful because I am the only one that they have, the only one onboarding, answering questions. 
So as you said, I just want to highlight that all these people that I'm describing work about the podcast seems a little different. They're sort of doing their own thing. So I don't track their hours as closely, but it's about 20 to 25 hours a month. And the reason it's so many people, first of all, I am launching a book. I do have two businesses, the pivot side of things in free time. So I think for most of your listeners will not need this level of infrastructure, but by giving people the work that they love the most, they don't need more time. I find I understand businesses where sometimes the role itself actually does require somebody to be full-time, but I find that for most of what we do, most of what you do, Ksenia, the goal is actually freeing the team's time as well. And I don't want anyone to feel like they're stuck at their computer because they're required to work X number of hours a week. I'd rather we get super creative about how the work gets done so that they can always be doing more and more interesting work. Yes. And also to highlight the fact that even though you're the founder, that doesn't mean you're working full-time. I know you've referenced that you work part-time for your business. Yeah, that's what I say in the book. I don't work full-time. I work free-time because I want to redefine. I think that if you're self-employed, running a business, you're already paying a risk and pressure tax. I would rather work 20 super-focused hours a week. So let's say four days, whichever days they may be. They don't even have to be Monday through Friday. But If I sit at my computer and I work for five very focused hours, I'm not procrastinating. I sit down at 10 or 11 a.m. I work till 2 or 3 p.m. And that's it. And then I'm done. For me, whenever I work more than that, other things start to be sacrificed, like my quiet time, reading time, time with Ryder, walking my dog, time with my husband, time to exercise. So this construct of a 40-hour work week. Time to tell him to clean up the dishes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, or time to joyfully do them myself because I'm not overworked. So I just don't thrive. Like my energy, my body, my system does not thrive when I work in a whole life sense, when I work 40, 50 hours a week. And I know that if you work for someone else, you don't have that option. But as a business owner, I just really don't think that if I could start from scratch designing the work week, I would definitely not design it Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week. So we have two minutes before you're meeting with your delightfully tiny team member. And there's two things that I want to bring in. First one is within that time that you do work within the book, there's this powerful invitation to make sure that you're not always doing things that need to be done in your business, but you also have the founder time in which you can reassess, reevaluate and see if your actions align with your values. The key takeaway there is block it off on your calendar as a recurring, if it's one hour a week, two hours a week, but that is your time to do your best, most strategic work on the business, not just in it. If you do not have a two-hour block that is for you, for your highest strategic thinking, that's your homework from this podcast. Just put it on your calendar at a recurring day and time. Love that. And the final thing that actually made me laugh out loud in the book is where you quote Lao Tzu, it says, those who flow as life flows, know they need no other force. And then underneath that is a quote from your dad that says, but one must do some flowing where there is an income stream. (laughs) And I find that this tug of those two questions, those two ways of looking at the world and life and business is exactly what I explore every day and why this podcast exists. And I think living this question is the whole point. There's not an answer. There's not an arrival point. It's a consistent exploration. And I really want to thank you, Jenny, for 
posing these questions and bringing us all into these spaces where we can explore the mystical and the business systems in one context. And thank you everyone listening for going on this journey from dirty dishes to free time and business (laughs) fears with us. This is like truly the scope of everything I am personally interested in every day. And I appreciate everyone who's coming on this journey with us. I do too so much. Thank you for this beautiful container as always, Ksenia. And you have no idea. It makes me so happy you picked that quote to read out loud because my dad edited the book several times and I had just at first only had that loud Sue quote. And then he wrote underneath, he's like, yeah, but. <laughs> and so I had to put it in the book. Keeping it real. It made me laugh too. Totally. And uh, you're right. That is the paradox that we're all holding. And I am just so deeply grateful to you, Ksenia. And you've been such an inspiration with what you bring to this podcast. And tremendous thanks to everybody listening. If you stuck around this long through all of our winding roads, I'm very grateful for you. And yeah, thank you for mentioning the book. And all of that is at itsfreetime.com. This podcast was made on Zencaster. If you're moved by what was shared in this episode and not sure how to take action, start by writing it down. When we notice abundance and clarity in all shapes and forms and honor it, it grows. And if you're called to share the podcast with someone who you know is ready to receive it, follow that. Find all episodes, show notes, and current offerings on KseniaBrief.com. Subscribe to Xenia Brief Podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and take one deep breath into the knowing that's already within you.